Thank you very much. I'm afraid I'm going to set cat among several pigeons. Um, I'm going to talk about lessons of the war. Yesterday was an important day. For one thing, it was my grandson's birthday. <laughs> For another, but uh, you all know about the other thing. My grandson's birthday, however, will forever be linked not only for me and his parents, <coughs> uh, but for him, with the death days of one million uh, British, Irish, Imperial Service men and women in the First World War, and more than half a million um, from uh, Britain, Ireland, and the Commonwealth in the Second. Behind the numbered and uniformed dead, they will hover for my grandson as for us a numberless civilian silent majority from Dachau and Dresden, Leningrad and Hiroshima. Wilfred Owen, you may remember, wrote to his mother in December 1914, do you know what would hold me together on the battlefield? The sense that I was perpetuating the language in which Keats and the rest of them wrote. We owe our language to those whose lives and deaths were commemorated yesterday, a debt and inheritance of which none should be more aware than teachers of English literature. And none should be more aware too of the extent to which that inheritance is threatened today by the corrupting viruses of advertising, politics, the media, spin doctrine of all kinds. In the time of lies or economy with the truth, we need truth tellers. We need our poets, playwrights, and novelists to tell us truthfully how it was, because how it was is all too often how it now is. Vernon Scannell's best known poem, The Great War, takes its reader from then to now. Now, whenever the November sky quivers with the bugle's hoarse sweet cry, the reason darkens. In its evening gleam, crosses and flares, tormented wire, grey earth spattered with crimson flowers. And I remember not the war I fought in, but the one called Great, which ended in a sepia November four years before my birth. Stamon tells us an inconvenient truth to coin a phrase. Whenever we British hear the November bugle's hoarse sweet cry, the reason darkens. In what way does our reason darken? A blood-red film of Flanders poppies blots out Dunkirk and the Normandy beaches, blots out Alamein and Auschwitz, Dresden and Hiroshima. Why does our reason darken? Why should the Great War be so central to the cultural memory and mythology of the British people? That's a question more often asked than answered, I think. There seem to me at least four interconnected answers. The first and most obvious, the horror, the horror, to borrow Joseph Conrad's phrase. A horror the more horrendous for being unexpected. For almost a century since the end of the Napoleonic Wars, wars involving Britain have been fought in the more remote and to those not involved it may have seemed the more romantic corners of the earth. The Crimea, the Northwest Frontier, Sudan, South Africa. 
all were fought by a regular army and at home <coughs> campaigns were seen as victorious. So at the outbreak of another war in August 1914, British popular opinion assumed it would end in victory and by Christmas. The second reason is that the war was not simply horrendous, it was cataclysmic. The destruction of life, the destruction of civil structures and institutions changed the course of British and European history more in four years than in the previous century. Thirdly, it was our war, for the most part waged and won by the mother country and her sons from Africa, Australia, Canada, India, New Zealand. By contrast, the battle honours and dishonours of the Second World War were shared with our American and Russian allies. But the final reason for the continuing dominance of the Great War may be that its horror was all too, all too soon became imaginatively graspable. Its dominant image, the trench, entered mythology reinforced by Christian iconography as the mouth of hell. That image was further reinforced, branded on the national memory by the poetry and prose memoirs of soldier poets. The branding iron was applied to my generation by school teachers who had themselves fought in the Great War or had been branded by others who had. An uncle of mine died in Gallipoli. One of my teachers lost half his face in the trenches. Another had a steel plate in his skull. Small wonder that during the Second World War they fed the next generation of cannon fodder a diet of Homer and Virgil, Owen and Sassoon. Their cannon, a cannon with uh, two ends rather than three, mutated into our cannon, one whose images darken our reason each November. And is this a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's bad for historical, literary and pedagogical reasons. Bad for historical reasons because the First World War had eclipsed the Second in our schools and universities and in our culture generally. Bad for literary reasons because the poets of the First World War have been canonized at the expense sometimes of better poets and prose writers, including, I have to say, some from the Second World War. Bad for pedagogical reasons because no contrast, no comparison is offered or invited between the ideologies, technologies, strategies, military and literary of the two world wars, let alone the other wars and civil wars of the 20th century. Our society's newsreel is jammed at the Somme in 1916, the time and place, as I've argued elsewhere, of almost all the best writing about the Great War. How often <coughs> have we all had to answer the question? Why, when there was so much marvellous poetry from the First World War, was there none from the Second? The double misperception can only be the fault of an educational system that overvalues the one and is ignorant of the second. If you doubt the accuracy of that statement, consider these facts. First, that in Poets' Corner of Westminster Abbey, a stone commemorating the poets of the Great War carries the names of Lawrence Binion, Wilfred Gibson, Robert Nichols, and Herbert Reed, among others. Second, that the Dean of Westminster and his advisers have rejected a proposal that a similar stone 
commemorating voices from the Second World War should be erected to carry the names of four much better poets of whom I'll have more to say later. Keith Douglas, Sidney Keyes, Alan Lewis and Henry Reid. I'm conscious of having played a part in raising awareness of the poetry of the Great War. I don't regret that. But when I meet school leaders and undergraduates who know more about Owen and Sassoon than Yeats and Eliot, I see that I've contributed to an excessive counterswing of the cultural pendulum. This, I think, should be corrected. But how? We meet today to discuss the teaching of First World War literature in secondary and tertiary education with special reference to three topics. One, the relevance today of the poetry of the Great War. Two, whether the canon of that poetry should be extended. And three, the wider topic of war poetry and how the poems of the Great War should fit into that category. First then, the relevance. It cannot surely be questioned that a generation born into a century disfigured by two world wars need to be acquainted powerfully and memorably with the black facts and lessons of those wars to help it and succeeding generations avoid a third world war some see approaching from the east. I wonder whether American public opinion of an invasion of Iraq would have been closer to British public opinion if Americans at school and college had heard and read as much of, about the wars of the past century as we have on this side of the Atlantic. Great literature can, of course, be a powerful persuader. And at its best, the literature of war offers memorable lessons about courage and cruelty, love and hate, the heights and depths of human behavior that are as relevant to peacetime as to wartime. Keeping in mind the criteria of powerful, memorable literature and its relevance to this 21st century, I turn to our second question. Should the canon of war poetry that we teach be extended? My answer, unquestionably, yes. In both secondary and tertiary education. I haven't myself taught the full GCE advanced level paper War in Literature with special reference to literature from about and during the First World War, but over the years I've lectured to thousands of students and I say hundreds of teachers um, who have um, lectured at the War Museum and elsewhere, people who've been working on that paper, and I know it's deservedly popular. I wonder, however, whether it might be more popular if it were rebalanced to include consideration of both world wars. Certainly it would be more relevant to the lives of students who might be called upon to confront the possibility, please God, not the actuality, of a third world war. In the 21st century, do they really need to focus on the performance of generals who learned their tactics in the Boer War? Will the syllabus not be more interesting if it included the fire from heaven as well as the trench mouth of health? The literary value of such a syllabus for secondary schools would, I think, be greatly increased if it replaced some of the weaker poets of the First World War with some of the stronger poets of the second. Conscious of uttering heresy, I must declare my belief that most significant poets of our time, <coughs> let's start with Ted Hughes, would rather have written the war poems, war poems of Keith Douglas than those of London, Gurney, or Sassoon. 
Why are Douglas's poems, not to mention those of Randall Jarrell and Louis Simpson, so little known, so little studied? Because of our trench tunnel vision. Because the British don't know the American poets, and the Americans don't know the British poets, there's emerged an ignorant consensus that the Second World War, unlike the first, produced no poetry to speak of. As educators, it's surely our responsibility to correct this misperception, and in so doing, to teach our students more about poetry, better poetry than some they now study, and we must teach it as poetry, not simply as a record of experience. The poems will tell them things they need to know about poetry, as well as a way about the way, the way in which the two wars differed. This was brought home to me when asked to write a foreword to a book of mini-biographies of um, 121 men from Magdalen College, Oxford, uh, killed in the Second World War, I realized <coughs> that many had grown up during the first. More than 30 of them had fathers who had served in the First World War, and few <coughs> kind of avoided absorbing the mythology of the trenches. It would have prepared them for what it would not have prepared them for what they would find. The war as unlike that of their fathers as it's possible to imagine. The differences are detailed on their gravestones. The dead of the father's generation, mainly infantrymen, buried in the broad landscape of the western front or on the coastal slopes of the Gallipoli Peninsula. The men commemorated in that book, airmen, almost a quarter of them, infantrymen, tank crew, sailors, special operations experts in guerrilla warfare buried in America, Australia, Belgium, Burma, England, France, Germany, Greece, Holland, New Guinea, Thailand, Yugoslavia, and at other of the round earth's imagined corners, to say nothing of those with no known graves in the ocean. The ocean. Now you may say that Magdalen men, for the most part, um, sons of the professional middle class or the landed gentry, should not be seen as a representative group photograph of Second World War servicemen. But it does point to the crucial contrast between an all but static land war um, and one fought not only in foot, but in tanks, submarines, fighter planes, and bombers. Today's students, I would argue, need to know the poems of Keith Douglas and his memoir of the war in the Western Desert, Alamein Zemzem, as much as they need to know the poems and prose of London and Sassoon. Even more relevant, perhaps, are the poems and prose of the new war in the air, <coughs> which you remember claimed the lives of almost a quarter of the Magdalen death toll. Today's students should read Richard Hurry's Battle of Britain memoir, The Last Enemy, Randall Jarrell's Death of the Ball Turret Gunner, and an extract, say, from John Hershey's Hiroshima. One of the appeals and strengths of the GCE paper has been its multi-perspectival character, allowing students to approach the battlefront by way of the home front, pausing at political and religious issues, technological developments, or women's rights. An extension, refocusing, rebalancing of the canon would allow the multi-perspectival story to be continued, at least in outline, to within sight of their own grandparents' day. At tertiary education level, I envisage more of the same. The introduction of more literary material, more cultural, social material. 
if the GCE canon were to be extended and refocused, as I suggest, to include more of the best war literature, less of the minor and marginal, university students would be better placed than at present to discriminate between literary and other criteria. Better able to see why Yeats and Eliot are major poets, despite their right-wing sympathies, and Owen and Sassoon, for all their well-directed anger and compassion, are not. A further benefit of extending the canon in this direction would be the opportunity it gives students at every level, secondary, tertiary, and graduate, to show originality. In 2007, it's easier to say something fresh, interesting, and relevant about Henry Reed and Keith Douglas than about Rosenberg and Blunton. I turn now to the third question. How should the poetry of the Great War fit into the wider category of war poetry? It should surely be central. A center, however, presupposes a surround, something to left and right, something before and after. My six-year-old grandson was introduced in primary school to knights in armor, and if in secondary school he has to march to the Somme, I hope he'll go by way of the plains of Troy, the fields of Kamlan and Agincourt. And when he reaches the Somme, I hope he'll be told, as I discover many 21st century students are not told, that Sawley and Sassoon, Owen and Rosenberg, are not representative of the thousands of poets who wrote about the Great War. Most wrote on themes and in assumed to be archaic literary language suggested by the section headings of E.B. Osborne's best-selling 1917 anthology, The Muse in Arms. Here are some of the section headings. The Motherland, In Memoria, Avalanche title there. The Future Hope, The Christian Soldier, School and College, Chivalry of Sport. Most of these poems have been rightly relegated to the dustbin of history. But it's important to remember that our canonized canon represents the exception rather than the rule. I hope that any classroom introduction to the poems of war will say at least this much of the heroic and chivalric pro-war poetry that went before. And what of what came after? I would wish my grandson to be told why Owen and Sassoon were seen as saints and martyrs by the writers who went to Spain in the 1930s. And why, as early as December 1939, widespread disappointment at the poet's failure to contribute to the war effort prompted a TLS leader writer to urge them to do their duty. He said, it's for the poets to sound the trumpet call. The monstrous threat to belief and freedom which we are fighting should urge new sounds to fresh songs, to fresh songs of deliverance. Far from taking up trumpets, the poets responded bitterly. Certain day Lewis with a poem called Where Are the War Poets? They who in folly or mere greed enslave religion, markets, laws, borrow our language now and been asked to speak up in freedom's cause. It is the logic of our times, no subject for immortal verse. We who lived by honest dreams defend the bad against the worse. Stephen Spender responded with an essay in which he wrote, at the beginning of the last war, Rupert Brooke and others were trumpets singing to battle. Why didn't Rupert Brooke step forward young and golden hair this time? No doubt in part precisely because one had done so last time. With another reason. 
the poetry of the war of democracy versus fascism had already been written by English, French, Spanish, German, and Italian emigre poets during the Spanish War. Some such introduction could prepare for a selection from the work of the poets featured in your handout. It was, I hope, a couple of Americans were to be included. The central discussion of World War literature could be rounded off with a brief coda of American responses to the Vietnam War. These were of three kinds. First, the so-called stateside poems, often by talented poets whose lack of first-hand experience had embarrassing results. And if you doubt that, look at Robert Lowell's poem on page nine of your handout. And below it, Tony Heck's savage denunciation of such a mercifully unnamed figure. Second, there were the poems by the veterans of the war. The so-called vets had the experience but some of the tongue. A third category had, to the best of my knowledge, and my knowledge is very limited on this, a single representative, John Balaban, who went to Vietnam not as a soldier, but as a conscientious objector, to work in an orphanage for children orphaned by his country's war. He left Vietnamese, stayed on after the war to teach in the Vietnamese university. His poems of those days have a fine grain, a specificity of detail, rare in the many poems, bearing first-hand witness to an armchair reading of the newspapers or the watching of television newsreels. As with poems of earlier wars, many of Balaban's best were written after the guns had fallen silent. This, for example, you have on your handout, in celebration of spring. Our Asian war is over. Others have begun. Our elders who tried to mortgage lives are disgraced or dead, and already the brokers are picking their pockets for the keys and the credit cards. In Delta Swamp in the United Vietnam, a marine with a bullfrog for a face rots in equatorial heat. An eel slides through the cage of his bared ribs. At night on the old battlefield, ghosts like patches of fog lurk into villages to mourn their own doorstills of cratered homes while all across the USA the wounded walk about and wonder where to go. And today in the simmer of lyric sunlight the chrysalis pulses in its mush mushy cocoon under the bark on a gnarled root of an elm. In the brilliant creek a minnow flashes delirious with gnats. The turtle's heart quickens its wraps in the warm bank sludge as she chases a frisbee spinning in sunlight, a girl's breast bounce full and strong, a boy's stomach as he turns is flat and strong. Swear by the locust, by dragonflies on ferns, by the minnow's flash, the tremble of a breast, by the new earth spongy under our feet, that as we grow old we will not grow evil, that although our garden seeps with sewage and our elders think it's up for auction, swear by this dazzle that does not wish to leave us that we will be keepers of a garden nonetheless. Balaban's opening has disturbing vibrations for readers in 2007. Our war is over. Others have begun. As <coughs> for Owen and Sassoon, the guilty men are the old who sacrifice the young. Our elders who tried to mortgage lies. 
scavenging vermin in America, the brokers anticipate the somehow more attractive scavengers in Vietnam, the bullfrog and the eel. The controlled fury of the speaker's first stanza is followed by pity for the dead on both sides and for the living dead. There's not much celebration on the old battlefield or across the USA. But with the third stanza, spring returns and the natural cycle of generation begins again. The chrysalis pulses, the minnow flashes, the turtle's heart quickens, and not only the turtle's heart. The girl's breasts bounce full and strong, a boy's stomach as he turns is flat and strong. Adam and Eve are once again in the garden of Henry Reed's Lessons of the War. I doubt very much if the poems about Vietnam had any significant effect on the course of the war. <coughs> Certainly the generally much better poems of 1914-18 and 1939-45 had no significant effect on the course of the two world wars. In the longer term, however, war poems have, through history, had a significant effect in shaping their society's attitudes to warfare. The epics of heroic ages, the Iliad, Beowulf, encourage the pursuit of glory with their celebration of courage and skillful sword play. Over the centuries, all that changed. More British poems of the First World War confirmed the old lie, Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori, and challenged it but with few exceptions they've been forgotten. The poets whose work has survived sing a very different song. One has played a significant part in introducing subsequent generations to the realities of modern warfare. The poems of the Second World War have had less impact, not I think because they were less good, but because the reading public has become increasingly attuned to prose, and because the word, prose as well as verse, has increasingly lost ground to the image. Today our knowledge of the war in Iraq probably derives as much from newspapers and television images as from the spoken or written word. I've yet to see a poem about our latest Haitian war that's worth the paper is written on. But all the precedent suggests we shouldn't expect to see one yet. And when we do, I think it's more likely to come from the hand of an aid worker, a doctor, or a war correspondent than from an armchair witness or a serving soldier. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.